Well, friends, if you need a Bible, we have some. They're available right by the door. We are in Nehemiah chapter 12. We left off in the middle of the book, or excuse me, the chapter. So turn please in your Bibles to Nehemiah 12, and we're going to start in verse 27. As I mentioned in my prayer, we are in our final study in the book of Nehemiah, and our final study in the Old Testament here, uh, as we're going to go back to the New Testament um, right around the beginning of August, uh, we're going to go and we're going to study the book of Matthew. And so we're looking forward to uh, making our way into the New Testament and studying and looking just at Jesus. We're going to spend some time just looking at Jesus, and I'm very excited about it. I read through the book of Matthew about six months ago, and as I was reading through it, I, I was just blown away. I read it a lot of times, but I was just blown away, and I was like, Jesus, you're just really amazing. You know, and it just sort of struck me. And my prayer is that God will really just struck us with, strike us with fresh eyes again as we look at the Lord. So that should be a fun time. We'll start that in August. Now, the last time we were together here looking at the book of Nehemiah last week, we took notice that a great ceremony uh, developed. And the, and the people began, they, they had this great ceremony where they were going to dedicate themselves to the law of Moses. So we read in Hebrews 10.29, it says, now the rest of the people join with their brothers and their nobles, they enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe and do all that he had commanded. And so they enter into this oath, and they seal that oath with a signed covenant. All of the leaders sign it, the rest of the people kind of raise their right hand, and they all agree, yes, we're going to follow, we're going to walk in the ways of the Lord. Now, just a quick brief look, the details of that oath are found in three places in chapter 10. The first was chapter 10, verse 30 which says that they would not intermarry with the heathen nations. So that's the first thing they pledged themselves to. The second thing was verse 31 of chapter 10, and that was that they were going to keep the Sabbath day. And then the third thing was that they would not neglect the house of the Lord. And what that meant was they would bring the tithes, they would bring the offerings to make sure that the work of the Lord could be done every single day. So they were, going, they were pledging not to neglect the house of the Lord. And they're, oh, they're taking an oath to walk in the ways of the law of Moses. And it's the direct result of the people dedicating themselves unto the Lord. They're, essentially, they're saying this, Lord, we're yours, and we'll do what you call us to do. All right, So that's where we were the last time we're together. Now, as we begin the rest of chapter 12, what we see is the next thing they're going to do, they dedicated themselves, now they're going to dedicate the wall of the city. And we read about it in verse 27 through verse 43. So, it's a, it's a long portion. Let me read that to you. You can follow along, starting in verse 27. It says, Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals and harps and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the village, villages of the Netephathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built themselves villages that were around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Verse 31. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall, and I appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall, to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah. And he starts listing them, Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, and so on and so forth. Skip down a little bit. It continues, it says, And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David 
to the water gate, which is on the east. Picking up again in verse 38, it says, Now the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshanah, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. And they came through a hall at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and it goes on to list their names. You can read that there. And then it says, And the singers sang with Jezrehiah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day, and they rejoiced with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Turn to your neighbor and say, The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Perfect. Just the amount of time I needed. All right. So, after some period of time, it could be three days, it could be a week, a month, or whatever, but after some period of time from when early on in chapter 10 and early in chapter 12, the people are dedicating themselves and things like that, they decide we're going to dedicate the wall of the city. Now, the idea of dedicating the wall of the city, we do it with buildings and boats and all that sort of stuff. You're sort of commissioning it to the purpose for which it was erected. And in this case, it was to preserve and to protect the people there of Jerusalem, the Jewish people, so that they can worship and serve the Lord as the Lord had called them to worship and serve Him there in the temple. And as we see in verse 27, this ceremony is going to be marked by great singing and thanksgiving. So we read in verse 27, it says they're going to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate this dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, with singing, and all of the various instruments. Now, to lead this ceremony, the Levites are called upon to be the leaders. Now, some of those Levites we see, they would live right there in Jerusalem. Some of them, though, have set themselves up outside of Jerusalem in the villages they've created right there near the city walls. And so, we read that in verse 27, they sought the Levites in all of their places. So wherever these Levites are, they're gathering them together uh, and instructing them to come to Jerusalem to lead this particular celebration. Now look down at verse 30. I'm flying because we've got a lot to do. Down in verse 30, it says they, that they begin by purifying themselves. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves. And then it says, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Now this idea of purifying themselves and the people, it would have been a ceremonial procedure. The people come in, hands are laid on them, they're anointed with oil or something, but it would have been some kind of a ceremonial procedure to purify themselves and to purify the people. It would have been like baptism. Now we know that baptism for adults is an outward sign of an inward work. The, the fact that a person goes into the water doesn't really mean anything. It's an idea, though, of expressing, this is what God has done in my heart. And so a person presents themselves, if you will, for that ceremony. But the ceremony doesn't do any good in and of itself unless it's an inward work, a sign of an inward work that has already been done. And so same idea here. These people, they perform this ceremony to purify themselves. But again, it doesn't mean anything unless God has already been doing a purifying work that is within them. Now, one of the points that I want to make here is notice what the priests and the Levites do. These are the leaders of the people. And what they do is first purify themselves, and then they purify the people. One of our worship leaders, one of our elders here at the church is Josh Barber. And Josh commonly will say to the worship team when they're gathered up here or when they're back in 
the other room and they're praying in preparation for service, he'll often say, gentlemen and ladies, he says, as worship leaders, we can only lead people as far as we ourselves have already gone. Worship leaders are not entertainers. They may sing, but they're not singers. They are leaders of worship, which means they have to be worshipers themselves. And so these folks here, if they wanted to see God do a purifying work in the hearts of the people of Jerusalem, then they had to first submit themselves to God doing a purifying work within themselves. And I think very similarly, if you want God to do a purifying work in, let's say, the home fellowship that you lead, well then God first must do a purifying work within you. The same goes for if you're a youth worker, or a children's church teacher, or a pastor, or an elder, or perhaps even just a parent. If you want to see God do a purifying work in your kid, then he must first be doing a purifying work in you. And I think the most important thing that a person can do for those that are in their charge is live an uncompromised life for Jesus. So that those that are observing and watching can see the reality of the relationship that you have in your life and they'll be drawn to that reality, that life relationship as well. And so here are these guys, they purify themselves first. And then after the purification process of themselves, after the purification process of the people, you'll notice there in verse 31, it says that Nehemiah brought up onto the wall and he formed two great choirs. The verse says, I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall, appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the Dungate, and we'll read the other one went to the north. Now, the wall of this city, we think of a wall, we, we basically think of a cinder block wall. Cinder blocks are anywhere from 8 to 12 inches in thickness, and so that's kind of, in our mind, what we picture. But the reality is the wall that would have been surrounding Jerusalem would have probably been somewhere 4 to 6 feet thick. As many of you are familiar with the, the Great Wall of China. That's something like 20 feet thick, or whatever it may be, and you can drive vehicles up on there. So we're talking about a wide wall, not just a skinny little narrow wall where the people are trying to, to walk up there and sing their songs and play their instruments without falling off of the balance beam here. There's plenty of room up on this wall, so much so that two choirs are formed. Formed. I find that interesting. You remember way back in chapter, what was it, chapter 4, when that little rat of a guy, Tobiah, says that even if a fox goes up on that wall, the wall will fall over and he's making fun of the Jewish people. Now you have two great choirs that are assembled up on that wall, skipping and dancing and having a good time while they're up there. Notice they were dancing for your notes. All right, well, it says, in verse 31 again, I brought the leaders up onto the wall. So the point is that I'm making, this is not a few people shakily standing atop the wall, but it's a mass of people that formed themselves into two groups. This is a sturdy and secure wall. And one of the groups head south toward the Dung Gate. That was the southernmost gate of the city. And we see that there in the second portion of verse 31. And then that's followed by a listing of those leaders that went in that direction. And you can read their names if you want to. Verses 32-36. through 36. But notice at the end of verse 36, it says that Ezra the scribe went before them. And we know who Ezra is. We've looked at him many times in both of our studies of Ezra and Nehemiah. So he's the leader leading the people in one direction. The second direction found in verse 37, they head out to the north. I'll read that. It says, the fountain gate, at the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate 
that is on the east. So you may recall when we were studying the gates of these cities that we learned that the fountain gate and the water gate, we have a picture, they were approximately 4 or 5 o'clock on your, uh, the face of a clock here. So that's where those are if you've forgotten. Look at verse 38. In verse 38 it says that that second group of people, they begin to head northward. And it says in the verse, um, and I followed, the I is Nehemiah. So even though he's in the back, Nehemiah is the guy leading those that are going to go in that particular direction. And then all of those names that are listed, the various towers that are listed, I've circled that area on that schematic there of the city. So they're heading off into that direction and they're going to encircle the city, these two groups there. And then they'll meet up again. Verse 40 says, So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God. They eventually make their way back to the temple. And I and half of the officials with me, and all of their names are listed. Then it says, And they offered great sacrifices that day, And they rejoiced with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Now, if you go back and count up all the names, I don't know why you'd want to, but I do do those things. I enjoy doing that. If you count up all the names, you have at least 36 people that are on the wall because 36 names are listed there. The reason I say at least is because in verse 36, it also says that and the relatives were with them. And then in verse 42, it says, and the singers were with this particular guy. And so you have at least 36, but maybe you have as many as 50, maybe you have as many as 100 people that are gathered and they're there parading around the the city walls and they're worshiping. And it says all of the surrounding people, they took notice of it. The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. And again, not bad for a wall that not even a fox could uh, go up on without it falling. And, And we just see God is faithful. And the people kept their eyes on the prize. They kept their eyes on the calling of what God had called them to do. They ignored all of the opposition that had come against them that we've seen so many times in the book. And they plugged away with what God was calling them to do. And here they are now on the other side of things. God is faithful. Now, as we move on to verse 44, you'll notice that it begins and it says, on that day. So we're still talking about the same day as the dedication of the city walls. And here, as we move on into these verses, we'll see that Nehemiah appoints some men who are going to be over the storerooms at the temple. The place they're going to store things at the temple. So let's read that section. Verse 44. It says, On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the firstfruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priest and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns, for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of the purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. Now I reminded you at the start of today's study that among the things that the people pledged is that they would keep the regular tithe. uh, The tithe and the offering in support of the work of God and the leaders that were performing the work of God, the duties of God. Now the tithes would come in a variety of forms. We see in verse 32 that it would come in the form of the shekel. So let me read those verses. It says, We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of God. We will not neglect the house of our God. So the idea is a coin or Um, something like that, the people would bring that and they would make their 
offering there of these coins. And they would add up as hundreds of thousands of people are bringing the coins. And so those coins need to be placed somewhere, put somewhere. That's what these rooms are for. We also see in verse 36 that they would bring the first fruits of the, of the ground and the fruit of the trees. And so you're bringing these bushel baskets filled with all of these fruit. All of this fruit, I should say. So all of that fruit and all of that grain and all of those shekels would have to go somewhere. It would have to be stored somewhere before being distributed out to the various leaders that they could provide for their family in that regard. And so, as Nehemiah does here, and as they did, storerooms were built, and men, Levites, were appointed over those particular storerooms. And again, that's found in verse 44. And you see and you get the, the idea that so much stuff is coming in that it's sort of overflowing. That they're building multiple storerooms. And the point is that the people were delighted to be participating in the work of the Lord. Whether by doing it or by financially supporting it, the people were willingly bringing the tithes and the offerings to the house of the Lord. And so these men are necessary uh, to distribute that and to oversee it. Uh, and that's the idea of verse 44. Now let's pick up in verse 47. It says, And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah they gave their daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Remember, the sons of Aaron are the priests. And so uh, everyone's getting the portion that they might live on. And you look at verse 47, you look at the last few verses of this chapter, and you say, what a great way to end the chapter. Everything is going well. The people are rejoicing. The whole world is taking notice of it. The people are excited to be participating uh, in the work. Uh, the leaders are leading well. Everything is going great. The Lord is being worshipped. The people are giving thanks. The neighbors are taking notice. And you, you, you finish the chapter, I do at least, and you're like, oh, that's great. That's wonderful. And I wish that this was the last chapter of the book. I wish Nehemiah ended with chapter 12 because then I would finish reading the book and I would say to myself, oh Lord, there is coming a day here on the earth, maybe just a year away, maybe a couple of months away, where I can settle, I can let down, and I could just coast my way into heaven. Now, how many of you read chapter 13? Today, like this week. Come on, people. Will said, Will sent out a note saying we're studying these two places and you should read ahead because Greg was going to ask. And so next time I come together with you, I'm going to ask you. And I would just lie to me. It just make me feel good. All right? Do whatever it takes here. I don't want you to lie to me. Just read the chapter ahead. All right, now if you read ahead and you took a, a peek at chapter 13, you know the reality that that little bit of heaven here on earth didn't last very long. Because if you read ahead, then you took notice that pretty soon compromise and sin once again entered the camp of the, the Israelites. And fights get started. People get called out. Yo, man, you know, and you know, I'll, let's take it outside kind of thing. Fights get started. People are getting called out. There's a portion of the chapter where people's beards are being ripped out of their faces. Now, don't you wish you read ahead now so you could read that exciting story? Well, so that's your fault. You missed out. Now, chapter 13 starts off fine. The first three verses, you're like, all right, keep on keeping on. And, and that. So let me read that to you, and it quickly turns. Verse 1 says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. Take notice, on that day, talking about the same day, they took notice uh, 
read the book of Moses, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. And yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all of those of foreign descent. Well, once again, we've seen this a number of times now, they dig into the Word of God, and as they dig into the Word of God, they discover an area that isn't measuring up, well, let me rephrase that, where their lives are not measuring up with the Word of God, and so then they submit themselves. Oh my gosh, we had no idea. Lord, we submit. We'll do what you ask us to do. And so here is another particular instance where that is happening. In this particular case, what we have here is uh, that they were allowing the Moabite and the Ammonite to participate in the assembly of God or to be a part of the assembly of God. Now to their credit, as soon as they hear that, they separate themselves and they say, what are we doing? We can't do that. And for these folks here, the Word of God says it and that settles it for them. And now it's just a matter of working out, all right, how are we going to deal with this and what's that going to look like? But the Word of God says it. There's no debate. There's no, well, you know, that was a long time ago or any of that stuff. It's this is what the Word of God says. And so we're going to figure out how to be obedient to the Word of God. We're committed to the Word of God. We see that again and again in this particular book. Now let's explain this idea because it sounds kind of mean. What, what's your nationality? Ammonite? You're out of here. That sounds kind of mean. doesn't sound like Bible, quite frankly, here. Don't we want to win the Ammonites? Don't we want to win the Moabites to the Lord here? So let me explain what is going on here. The phrase, to enter the assembly of God, it's meant to be regarded as one of the people of Israel or one of the people of God. Now, way back in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said this, as the Lord called a young fella, a guy by the name of Abram, he was 75 years old at that time, that's so young, but when he called this young polytheistic fellow to himself, he said to him that he was going to make of him a great nation, despite the fact that Abram didn't have any kids. He said, one day you and your descendants are going to be this great nation. And of that nation, verse 3 of chapter 12 of Genesis says, I will bless those that bless you, and he who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now sadly, throughout the history of the world, certainly as we chronicle it in the Scriptures, but even in our day, sadly, many individuals and entire nations throughout history did not take and do not take that promise of the Lord seriously. And one such people in the history of the world, actually two people, are the Moabites and the Ammonites. Now the Moabites and the Ammonites were two surrounding nations to the promised land. Remember, the Jews had not entered into the promised land yet, what would later be called Israel. They were wandering from slavery out of Egypt and making their way to the land that God had promised to them. Two of the neighboring nations of the land that they were going to have to pass through were the nations of Ammon and the nation, uh, or the empire, if you will, of Moab. Today, it would be modern-day Jordan. And rather than bless the Jewish people at that particular time, we read instead they sought to curse the Jewish people. Rather than going out and meeting these travelers and say, hey, you know what, you're passing through, fantastic, look, we made some dinner for you, we got some cold drinks for you so that you can sort of revive yourself on your way. Rather than doing anything like that, they instead, that would be blessing them, they instead curse them. And the account is found in Numbers chapter 22. And Numbers 22 is a very, it's actually 22 through 24, very interesting chapter, somewhat entertaining, 
Uh, you read it and you're like, wow, this is fascinating. I can't believe that happened and things like that. There's parts you're going to just laugh at and you're like, God, you're so funny how you do that particular thing. But there, the, the general idea of those three chapters is this. That the people of Israel are increasingly, they're growing as a people, and they're increasingly moving toward the day where they're going to possess their own land, and the nations around begin to take notice of that. And one of those nations uh, is the book, uh, or the people of Moab. Numbers chapter 22-3 says that the people of Moab see what's happening and that a great dread, a great fear comes upon them of this advancing people. And so the passage tells us that the son of the king, uh, a guy by the name of Balak, he realizes that like their many neighbors, that if, if they're not going to have any hope to stop these guys because they're just advancing through and all of this and they won't be able to withstand them. Uh, and so he goes and he hires a prophet, quote-unquote, I'll say. And that guy's name is a fellow by the name of Balaam. So there's Balak, the king's son, who hires a prophet, a guy by the name of Balaam. And he hires him specifically for the purpose. He says, you're a prophet of God? And Balaam says, yes, I am. He says, great. How much would it cost for you to come in and curse the people of God? And Balaam says, well, what do you got in your wallet? You see, I say he's a prophet because here's a guy that I'll do whatever, just give me a buck. I'll, go any, I'll say anything, I'll do anything, as long as you pay me, everything is fine. And so he brings this guy, Balaam, Balak, brings this guy, Balaam, he overlooks, he gets on a high place and he overlooks where the children of Israel have sort of settled for the night or whatever, and he says, all right, get to it, curse him. And this guy, Balaam, he stands up and he says, all right, here I go. And when he opens up his mouth to curse the people, God instead puts in his mouth words that bless the people. And Balak's like, what's the matter with you? I didn't say bless the people. Give me that money back. Or whatever. He said, he said I, I can only say what God puts in my mouth to say. He says, all right, we'll try this again tomorrow. The next day they go, a week later, whatever, they go to another hill, overlook the people. He says, now do your thing. And he, instead he opens his mouth. He's all ready to curse the people, but blessings come out. He's like, you're driving me nuts. Third time they do it again. And finally Balak's like, this is ridiculous. You're done. I'm done with you. And Balaam, every time, instead of cursing the people, he blessed the people. And it was not, we know it was not by design. There's a fascinating story that continues on as you read a number of chapters later. It, it seems that the conversation went on between Balak and Balaam laterward, uh, afterwards. And he says to him essentially something like this. He says, look, God's not allowing me to curse them, but I can tell you how to make them curse themselves. And here's how you do so. And he gives them the secret for how they can destroy themselves. You'll have to come back for another study to find out what that secret is. All right, But essentially, the people then bring it all upon themselves at the advice of, the leading of, and the direction of this false prophet, this guy that says he's a prophet, this guy Balaam. You can read about it. Numbers chapter 22 uh, through number 24. Well, here we are now. That was during the days of Moses. Here we are now. We're down the road thousands of years later. Even down the road, just a little bit later during Moses' life, Moses wrote God's response to how the Ammonites and the Moabites were treating the Jewish people there by cursing them. And this is found in Deuteronomy chapter 23, in which the Lord says this, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. That's the Lord's response for those, you want to curse my people, then you yourself will be cursed. And here is the curse. It says, even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. And so 
You say, well, is it 10th generation or forever? The, the phrase 10th generation is a phrase which is designed to mean forever. That's the point. It's just going to go on forever. 10th generation, is that, that's like saying 5,000 billion years or whatever. The, the point is forever. And so it says, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came up out of Egypt, and they hired against you Balaam to curse you. And so they cursed Israel, and thus they were cursed. Now, does this mean that no Ammonite or Moabite may ever enter into a relationship with, with the Lord? Well, certainly in our day, that's not really much of a concern because there's not a whole lot of Ammonites and Moabites that are running around that we have to be worried about whether they can come to the Lord. But that being said, does this mean that an Ammonite and a Moabite could never begin a relationship with the Lord? That they're forever perpetually excluded from ever entering the assembly? Does that prevent an individual from converting to the faith and becoming a child of God? And I would suggest to you, no, it does not. And I think the best example of this, one of my favorite heroes of the Scripture, Ruth. And she is, what's her last name? The Moabitess. That's her last name. All right, Ruth the Moabitess. And Ruth, uh, she comes into a relationship with the Lord. She says to her mother-in-law, after her son had died, um, excuse me, her husband had died, uh, the mother-in-law says, you know what, you're young enough, go back to your parents, find another young man, and kind of get on with your life. And, and she says, I don't want to go back to my parents because my parents worshipped and served the false gods. I want to stay with you, and I want to worship and serve the real God. And so I'll go where you go, and I'll be where you be. It says in Ruth 1.16, don't urge me to leave you. Shut up. Stop nagging me. I'm staying with you. Where you go. I don't think she said shut up. But where you go, I will go. For, uh, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, the Jewish people, and your God shall be my God. And she goes on to be a wonderful woman of the faith, um, even in the line of the Messiah. Uh, and so, yes, the, uh, the individual could convert to the faith, could become a part of the covenant people of God, um, but they would have to do so by a deliberate choice. Not just as a nation were they going to be blessed because the nation brought a curse upon themselves. Well, anyway, the point of the verses here is that the people read through the law. They have to be reading now through Deuteronomy. They're toward the end of Moses' five books. And in the process, they discover that they had not been keeping a decree of the law. And so they get to it. They respond. And they begin to walk in obedience. So again, look at verse 3. As soon as they heard the law, they separated themselves from Israel and all those of foreign descent. Let's go on to verse 2. Or excuse me, verse 4. But before we look at verse 4, just look down for a moment at verse 6. Because that gives you a context of things. It says, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. That's Nehemiah. Because in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king of Babylon, uh, he went to uh, see the king. So all those other events that we were looking at um, this morning, they are, were associated with the dedication of the wall. Then, between verse 3 and verse 4 of chapter 13, there's a break in the action. We don't know how long the break in the action is. It could be, uh, it could be months, it could be years, certainly so. But there's certainly a break in the action between verse 3 and verse 4. And here is Nehemiah back in the area with the king. Remember, he was the cupbearer of the king. It seems now he's back in Babylon. Remember, in the beginning of the book, he came from Susa, which was the summer capital of, uh, of the king of Persia. So now he's back there in Babylon. And however long has gone by, years have gone by, he goes back to the king again, and he says, I'd like to request a leave of absence. 
Now you remember the last time he requested a leave of absence, it was a 12-year leave of absence. So I suspect the king is probably like, and how long are we talking this time here? Weeks or years uh, or whatever? But he says, look, I just want to go back. I want to check on people, see how things are going back there in Jerusalem. So that's what starts with verse 4. It says, Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, who was related to Tobiah, he prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given to the Levite singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. While this was taking place, I wasn't in Jerusalem. For in the 36th year, second year, I went back to Artaxerxes. And after some time, I asked leave of the king, and I came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber, out of the room. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God and the grain offering and the incense offering, the frankincense. So Nehemiah, he leaves, he returns to Babylon. He leaves in a condition, a state, where he's confident that the work that he had gone there to do was done. I've done what I was supposed to do. I am just ready to go. My wife and I and my family, were going on vacation tomorrow, which meant yesterday I had lots of stuff to do. And I got everything done. And it was like, and that's why I fell asleep. If you saw my picture on Facebook, uh, give me a break. I was running. And I, I was able to just say, I am done and I am ready to go. And, and that's kind of Nehemiah. He had done his to-do list of Jerusalem. The people were in a great place. And now he could go back to Babylon or wherever it is that he was going to go back to. And everything would be fine. We would like to think. But Nehemiah, you know, move, God moves on his heart. And he says, you know what? I just want to go back, see how the people are. Worship once again at the temple. You've you got to imagine as he's making his way. It's probably a four-month journey. As he's making his way from Babylon to Jerusalem, he's thinking, this is going to be great. You know, I can see some of the kids that were in youth group or Sunday school, they're probably going to be leaders now. This is going to be fantastic. I'll be able to gather with the people again and worship at the temple. Oh, I can't wait to hear the sound of thousands praising the Lord. We don't hear that much in Babylon, but I'll be able to go back to Jerusalem and there I'll hear it again. I'll be able to fellowship with people again. I'll be able to go into the coffee shops again. And everyone's talking about Jesus. And it'll just be so refreshing. I can't wait to get there. And imagine how he must have felt and how let down he must have felt when he came to the temple and discovered that the high priest of the people had cleared out some space at the temple so that Tobiah could set up a little home for himself there. Now you say, well, what's up with Tobiah? Well, Tobiah, you recall from earlier in our study, was the sworn enemy of Nehemiah and the people of Israel. Tobiah was the one that for years kept coming out against Nehemiah, kept coming out against the people of God. Tobiah was the one that sought to lure Nehemiah out into the wilderness to kill him. And the plot was discovered. That's the Tobiah. And by the way, Tobiah, his last name is the Ammonite. And so Tobiah is an Ammonite. And not only is he allowed in with the people of God, he's allowed a place, a house, an apartment, at the temple, in the temple itself? What is going on? What has happened since I left? Is what Nehemiah must be thinking here. And not only is he back again there, but Eliashib the priest gives him an apartment there. Eliashib the priest. This didn't go, you know, I, I didn't know. My gosh, this is terrible. Eliashib is involved in this decision here. And you know, I wrote down, is this guy out of his mind? 
I suspect a little bit. But what we also know about Eliashib is that he is living, he's the priest, the high priest, but that he is living in compromise and that he had joined into a relationship through marriage with Tobiah or with Tobiah's family. So his son married Tobiah's kid or his daughter married Tobiah or or something like that. And so you see there in verse 4, it says, who was related to Tobiah. And so he's marrying his kid off into a for, uh, to these foreigners. The very thing that they pledged themselves just back in chapter 10 not to do, here is the head of the people doing it. And Nehemiah hears this. And Nehemiah deals with it. Now, admittedly, Nehemiah's uh, methods are a bit unorthodox. Uh, so let's look at what he does. I don't know if this is how we are supposed to handle it necessarily, but it worked, so maybe it is. But no, notice what he does. It says in verse 7, I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done by preparing a room for Tobiah in the courts of the house of the Lord. And I was very angry, and I broke into the room, and I began to throw out all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. My wife said it's like a Jerry Springer show. You know, and it's breaking loose and every, the fight spills out into the streets and everyone's watching what's going on. Then Tobiah gives orders that the chamber uh, be cleansed. So, if you would, imagine the scene. Nehemiah screams at Eliashib, you did what? Which is then followed by him barging into the apartment and throwing out kitchen chairs and pots and pans and TVs and everything out there into the courtyard. He then, uh, Nehemiah that is, calls the priest. Calls the priest. And he says to them, look, this room, these rooms, they need to be cleansed. You know, they need to be purified, if you will, once again. And the vessels that were taken from here, those need to be returned to here as well. And you look at it, and he's like, this is not the return that I had in mind. I was expecting by now to be at the second service, worshiping the Lord and having a great time. And this is the way I have to come back. And it seems to me, based on what happens here, that Nehemiah then begins to inquire How could this have happened? How could we have gotten to this particular place? And among the many questions, I imagine the question arose about uh, why the tithes and offerings were no longer being placed in these rooms. That's why the rooms were built. And so Nehemiah says, what's this guy doing here? And where are the tithes and offerings? Where'd you put them? And then some of the the people respond to him and simply said, well, there are no more tithes and offerings. What do you mean there are no more tithes and offerings? Nehemiah says, how come? And they respond, well, the people stopped bringing the offerings. The people stopped bringing them. When I left, the people were delighted to bring the offering, delighted to participate in the work of God, so much so that multiple rooms had to be built. And now you're telling me there are no offerings? And again, what is going on here? Then he says, well, how are the priests and how are the Levites providing for themselves? And they respond, well, they're not. He said, well, then where are they living? Well, they all moved out of Jerusalem. And they had to go to the villages and get a job for themselves. And that's where everybody is and what everyone's doing. That's why this place is a ghost town that you see. And Nehemiah noticed. And you think, wow, you've got a great imagination. I'm not making this up. Look at verse 10. It says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. And so the Levites and the singers who had done the work had fled each to his own field. And again, Nehemiah must have been stunned. Again, thinking, you know, I left things in such a great place and now, look where we've come. Well, 
Nehemiah is not a guy for an action. So look, right in verse 11, he gets to it. It says, So I confronted the officials and I said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and I set them in their particular station. So here's Nehemiah. He knows what needs to be done. Nehemiah doesn't say, well, we need to have a prayer meeting to see what God wants us to do. He knows what needs to be done. Sometimes you don't need a prayer meeting. Just get up and do it because you know what needs to be done. And so since he knew God's will, he went in, he kicked Tobiah out to the curb as we saw. Now he knows it's time to get the priests and the Levites back here and for the people to once again be supporting them. And wisely, because we saw in another place he rips people's beards out, wisely the people listen to Nehemiah because it hurts to have your beard ripped out. And it says in verse 12, then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, and the oil into the storehouses. And so, verse 13, just like he did before, Nehemiah appoints people over those storehouses. It says, and I appointed as treasurer over the storehouses, uh, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and their assistants with them because these men were considered reliable and their duty would be to distribute to their brothers. And then Nehemiah says, Remember, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for His service. It almost seems like if it was wrong of me to throw everything out on the road, I'm sorry, but I have good intentions, Lord. I don't know if that's what his point is there. But nonetheless, he says, You know what, Lord, I've done this to honor You. Now, that's that issue. Rough start to Nehemiah's vacation. But you know what? Tomorrow will be a better day. Right? Not really. Look at verse 15. Because verse 15 says tomorrow is the Sabbath. And it says, in those days, tomorrow, quote-unquote, in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and wine and, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem, you can underline it, on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food, the Tyrians, that's the people from Tyre, also who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself, it says with an exclamation point. And so not only did the people stop bringing the tithe to support the work of God, but they also began to ignore God's command to keep the Sabbath day holy. And Nehemiah, he must have been thinking, we just dealt with all of this stuff. This is what you pledged in chapter 10. And so look at verse 17. Once again, he confronts the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I confronted the nobles of Judah, and I said, what is this evil thing that you are doing? Profaning the Sabbath day. Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? And now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And so he reminds them that for acting this way, their fathers, their grandfathers, and others, they were judged for that. And so Nehemiah, he kind of helps them along with their obedience in the same way that he helped Tobiah move out. Uh, verse 19 says, As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem, I commanded that the doors be shut. And I gave orders that they should not be open for a full day until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gate that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares, they came to the gate, couldn't get in, so they lodged right outside of the city. And they did this once or twice. But I warned them. A picture. Nehemiah hanging over the wall. You might want to move on. You know, I'm not in a good mood. I'm frustrated. My vacation stinks. You know, and he's yelling out to these folks here. 
He says, I warned them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do it again, I will lay hands on you. Right? And that's not hands of prayer. I'm going to come and I'm going to lay hands on you. And wisely, from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and they should come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. And then he throws in a prayer. And Lord, remember this also in my favor, O my God. Spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. I don't know for sure, but I sense that that prayer, which we saw at the end of the last section as well, is sort of a man that is opposed, if you will, to everyone that is around him and feeling as if he is, who's just saying, you know what, Lord, I'm trying to honor you. And remember me, Lord, for taking a stand here for you. I don't, I don't know, but Nehemiah is not playing. And one way or another, the people are going to observe the Sabbath. And if he has to go down there and you know, do what he's got to do. Well, a little bit of time goes by. And you would think things are going to settle down. People are going to establish good habits. But look at verse 23. And this is an extended reading. I'll read this to you here. Uh-oh. All right. Verse 23 says, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Oh my gosh. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for yours or for yourselves. Did not Solomon the king of Israel sin on account of such women? And among the many nations there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? It continues. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Verses 23-29. So not only did the people provide Tobiah a place to live, and not only did they forsake the Sabbath and the bringing of the tithe and the offering, but here now, they completely abandon the vow that they have taken before, and they've given themselves to the people of the surrounding nations. And they're intermarrying with the people, as it said, of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab. And to make matters even worse, if that's even possible, one of the grandsons of the high priest, no doubt the high priest himself did the wedding, but one of the grandsons of the high priest married one of the daughters of a foreigner himself. And we've talked about this. It's not anti-foreigner. It's anti-false worshiper. Uh, and you can go back and you can listen to some of our other studies on that. But not only did he marry a foreigner, but notice what it says in verse 28. He married the daughter of Sanballat the Horonite. You remember Sanballat? Sanballat and Tobiah? The two that did so much to disrupt what, God, what Nehemiah was hoping that God would do through them, and they marry Sanballat. And you look at that, and Sanballat and Tobiah were losing all along. It looked like they were going to be victorious. They're gathering all these people, and they're losing, they're losing, losing, losing. And here now, they're sitting in the temple apartment, feet up, no doubt, on the coffee table, smoking a cigar, laughing at Nehemiah. We won. Nehemiah's not around, and here we sit in the temple courts, in our very own home. We won. And the very thing 
that Nehemiah and the prophets before him had repeatedly told the people not to do, as soon as Nehemiah takes off, they start doing. And I can only imagine how devastated Nehemiah must have felt to return to the land, find the people engaged in the very thing they swore an oath that they would not do. And again, remember how we started. They pledged not to intermarry with the nations outside of Israel. They pledged not to neglect the house of God. They would bring the tithe and the offering. They pledged to keep the Sabbath day holy. The three exact things that they are doing here. And so these guys have completely walked away from the Lord and walking in the ways of the Lord. And Nehemiah confronts them. He curses at them. Now that's not that kind of cursing. All right? It's this idea of, that we talked about before, I'll bless you or I'll curse you. And so they're experiencing, if you will, they will experience the consequence of their action. And Nehemiah begins to beat them up and pull out their hair. I don't recommend that style of leadership, but it worked, I guess. Uh, but I, who knows why? But for whatever reason, the people that had taken an oath, I bet in sincerity, I'm going to walk in the ways of the Lord. When the Lord tells me to do this, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go where the Lord tells me to go and so on. Here, they compromise. And perhaps they reason things like, it'll be okay. I'm a strong Christian. Maybe I can influence them for good and kind of bring them. Maybe they'll come to church with me because I go to church. All of these things. But sadly, what we see is rather than bringing these foreigners up to their level, if you will, of relationship with God, rather these foreigners bring them down to their own. And the people that are primarily impacted by it are the children. It says they don't even know the, the Hebrew language anymore. That's the idea. They just learned the culture of the unbelieving parent. So Nehemiah, in his rebuke, he brings them back to Solomon. Now we know that Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. And there in verse 26, he mentions his name. It's as if he's saying, you think you're so smart. Well, don't you know that even the smartest guy, the wisest guy that ever lived was tripped up by this particular sin? And you think it won't affect you. How foolish of you. And so he tells the people, take an oath in the name of the Lord. Commit yourselves again to listen to God and not continue in this great evil. That's verse 25. He says, I made them take an oath that they would not do this particular sin. Let's go on. Verse 30. Thus I cleansed them oh boy, from everything foreign and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites each in his work and I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Well, that's how the book ends. And again, you look at that and you wish, man, I just wish there wasn't a chapter 13. Because I could walk out of here feeling pretty good about myself. You know, all right, Lord, I'm going to do it. And how we wish that we could make a pledge and that was the end of things. And then we could just sort of walk on with the Lord. But we all know, sadly, that's not the way that life works. The mountaintop experiences, they come, and that's great. I'm glad that the mountaintop experiences come. But if we're going to have, and we're going to have those periods of sort of individual revival, community revival as a church and as a nation and all of that. And we will take our oaths with utmost sincerity and say, God, I'm going to follow you and mean it with all of our hearts. But the question then is, where will you be a year from now in that commitment? And where will you be five years from now in that commitment? Because the fact that you take an oath today or you pledge yourself today or you guarantee the Lord today does not necessarily mean that that's where you're going to be in five years from now. As I said last week, we must continually say yes this day and every day to walk in the ways of the Lord. And the people of Jerusalem, they forgot that. And in chapter 13, they began to make compromises. 
and the leadership began to slack. Less attention was being paid to the Word of God. And little by little, the people began to drift until they found themselves once again way out into the deep, drowning, if you will, in their sins. Is there any reason to think these things won't happen in our lives as well? Why would it be any different for you and I? And so, I don't know when the last time you sort of made a commitment to walk in the ways of the Lord, but why would it be any different in your life from these guys if you allow yourself to drift to not find yourself out in the deep, drowning? If there's anything that we have learned from the book of Nehemiah, as sort of a wrap-up to this study, if there's anything we learned, one of the persistent themes was that vigilance is the price of liberty. And you might possess that liberty today, but you must be on your guard to keep that liberty. And we must ever remain on our guard from the subtle attempts of the enemy to lead us astray. We must remain on our guard against our own tendency to drift from the Lord. And we need to ever remain on our guard against the little compromises which before long will become major sins. I've said it a few times. The Lord loves us, and the Lord wants real good things for each of us. And the Lord desires that our hearts would be devoted to Him. Why? Because that's what your heart was created to be. And when your heart is in uh, commitment and devotion to the Lord, you're living your life, if you will, phrase, in the sweet spot of life. That's what you were created to be. And that's where you'll find the place of peace and joy and rest and satisfaction. The Lord loves you and He wants real good things for you. These people forgot that and drifted and had to experience the consequences of that. Now let me just close with this. We see these guys falling back into their sin. We see it repeatedly in the book and in the history of the Jewish people. Good days, bad days. Good days, bad days. Good years, bad decades, it seems. And we look at that and we might think, you know what, the fall is inevitable. That there's no hope for me. I have a good day today, but who knows? So you know what, I might as well just coast through this Christianity thing. And my response to you would be this. The fall is not inevitable. The drifting is not inevitable. And if you're not sure of that, you're like, I don't know if I agree with that. Look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah didn't fall away in all of the days of his life. And he continued to walk with the Lord. Now you might doubt that based on the fact that he's throwing people's stuff out on the curb and he's ripping out people's beers. But the point is, he never fell away from the Lord and that he continued to worship the Lord and to walk with the Lord. And so that I say to you, the fall is not inevitable and the drifting is not inevitable. We read this in the book of Hebrews. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run the race with endurance. That's chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 11 is what we call the hall of faith. These great men and women of the faith that walked with the Lord, they ran the race with endurance, they came to the end of their days, and they can look back and they can say, I lived my life for the Lord, and now I'm ready to enter into my reward. And notice again there, they ran the race with endurance. There is a great cloud of witnesses that essentially speak into every one of our lives it can be done we can live for the lord jesus every day of our lives we can run hard after him so that when he comes to take us home and we enter into heaven for a moment there we won't even realize we're in heaven because we've been living a life of heaven here upon the earth that race can be run and the fall is not inevitable you and i we can run this race with endurance but it requires that you cling to the Lord. We talk about John chapter 15, abiding in Christ. That's the requirement. And I love the Lord. And I believe you do as well. 
I don't want to fall away from the Lord. I don't want to walk. I don't want to go down some path where I just become complacent in my knowledge of him. I want to cling to him and run with him. And the race can be run. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And Lord, as we consider these things, Lord, we are reminded, Lord, that we do need to keep our eyes firmly fixed on heaven. Lord, if we're going to run this race with you, we can't become distracted by the things around us, Lord. The trinkets of this world, the shiny things that catch our attention. But we must keep our eyes firmly fixed on you. Lord, as it says in another place, that we must lay aside every weight that ensnares us, those things that entangle us and will trip us up and run the race with endurance. And Father, I pray for the people of Calvary Mercer. Lord, You've seen fit to draw us to this place and to this body of believers together that we might run the race as one. Lord, that we might grab, if you will, sort of the, the arm of the other, throw it over our shoulder and say, come on, let's run this race together. We'll get there. Lord, to mutually encourage one another to support one another. When one is weak, that others would be strong and vice versa. And Lord, truly, this church, the church, is a tremendous gift from heaven. And we delight in it. And so Lord, I pray for uh, just a continued work that You would knit our hearts together as one body of believers. Lord, that we would love one another well. And support one another well in this process. But when it seems like all else perhaps is against us, that we will know that I have a brother and I have a sister and I have a whole host of brothers and sisters committed to following You. So Father, we thank You for our time here in the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're thankful for the reminders and the things that we've learned and considered. Lord, You've used Your Word to really challenge us in a lot of ways this last six months. And we're grateful for that. Lord, we're thankful that You desire to change us into the image of Your Son. And that You've given us Your Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us every step of the way. Father, we pray You would fill us with Your Spirit. And Lord, that the fruit of Your Spirit would encompass our hearts and our minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.